Psalm 95. Let's stand together, and Debbie, if you could come and read God's word for us. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they'd seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Thank you. Lord, we come to you this morning, having sung praises to you, having been reminded, Lord, of your greatness, your gospel, your goodness to us, Having been reminded, Lord, of uh, the way in which our heart can stray. So, Lord, allow us uh, during the next 45 minutes to an hour or so, Lord, to give ourselves wholly to you. And to place ourselves under the preaching of your word and to be eager recipients. Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? What we are not, Lord, would you make us? And what we have not, Lord, would you give us? We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. You know, there are many familiar psalms. I'm sure you could name off a few, and I'm going to name off a few right now just to kind of remind us of some that are famous or, I would say, uh, familiar to us. Psalm 23 probably is the most familiar to most people, even those that are not part of the body of Christ, simply because it is the shepherd's psalm, and it's often read where? At funerals, right? And so at a funeral, you might just you know, be an unbeliever coming into the context of a funeral and hearing a pastor read, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. It's a wonderful psalm, the shepherd's psalm. Then there's Psalm 1, the blessed man. It really marks off and prepares for the whole of the Psalter, the whole of the book of the Psalms. And it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of, of, of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And it goes on and just talks about the wonder and the beauty of walking with God and the blessedness that comes with that. Then there's Psalm 51, David's great psalm of repentance. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions and wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. You know, when the reformers would walk to the fires of their execution, they would be quoting Psalm 51. It's a powerful psalm. But maybe less familiar is Psalm 95. But if history is anything to go by, Psalm 95 might be the most ever read psalm since the beginning of the Reformation. You see, in 1552, after the Reformation took root in England, the Book of Common Prayer was written. And it was written with the village in mind because the people across England were, were for the most part, illiterate. 
And in order for them to have the Word of God read, the Book of Common Prayer established a morning and an evening service. And you would come into that service in the morning. You know, we, we talk about having our own personal quiet time with the Lord, our own devotional time. Back in that day, you got up in the morning and you went to church. And you started out with prayer with other people that were there. And then the Word of God was read for you to hear. And usually, each service, you'd have a chapter of the Old Testament, a chapter of the New Testament, and then about three or four chapters of the Psalms. And so, as a result of that, you would do that in the morning, and you would do that at night. This is how the Reformation took root and spread in England. It was on Sunday that the pastor preached, but it was throughout the week, every day, twice a day, that the people would gather in their local village church to hear the Word of God read. And do you know what psalm was read at every service, every morning, and every evening before the rest of the Word of God was read? Can you guess? Psalm 95. Now hear this. If you were a faithful church-going Protestant, you would hear the psalm read twice a day. That's 720 times a year. And if you have been attending church for 40 years and you were somewhat regular, you would have heard this psalm read 28,000 times. That is how important the Church of England thought that Psalm 95 was to the health and the well-being of the church. But why? Because Psalm 95 lays out for us the true heart of contemporary worship. It is a psalm that both calls us to worship but also prepares our hearts for worship. This morning, we began with a call to worship. And the point of a call to worship is to, to say, come, stop what you're doing. Set aside the distractions. Think about why you're here. Focus on God. Drawing all those things together, because we all bring in all sorts of baggage, don't we? If we could tie strings to all the baggage that we brought in this morning, there would be all sorts of strings going out that door. And a call to worship says, snip, 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 focus on Christ. It's not that those things are unimportant, but we want you to see Christ first. And so Psalm 95 has been called the Veniti Psalm. And the word Veniti is the Latin word translated come because it's used three times in this psalm in Latin. O come, let us sing, verse 1. O come into his presence, verse 2. O come, let us worship and bow down. But it's also a psalm of contrast. Described as the sunshine of a beautiful day, verses 1 through 7a, and the darkness of a stormy night, verse 7b through 11. You have the wonderful brightness of the sun in the first part. You have the darkness and the gloom of a stormy night in the second part. And with that as our backdrop, let us jump into this very important psalm and seek to understand the true heart of contemporary worship. And it's going to divide into those two parts. First of all, a call to worship, verses 1 through 7a. So this is 1 through 7a, or a call to worship our great God, from verse 3, and our personal God, from verse 7. The Lord is a great God, we're told in verse 3. Verse 7, He is our God. 
So these verses are full of different rays of sunshine where the person and work of God is revealed and then reflected back to God by those who are gathered for worship. That's what we do here this morning. We hear the word of the Lord and we reflect back what we hear in praise. We don't just sing songs just to sing songs because they have a catchy tune. We want to declare to God what he has revealed to us about who he is and what he has done for us. And verses 1 through 7 include two cycles of instructions on how we are to worship, which are each followed by the reasons why we are to worship. And there's a progression in the summonses to come using these three different Hebrew words. First of all, and this is verse 1, oh, come, let us sing. This is a, a general call. This is like the person going out and saying, hey, come, come. The service is about to start. Come. The second one says, come into his presence. The idea there is to come and to meet with him. It's not just come to the event, but it's come to stand face to face with the majesty of the Most High. And then in verse 6, come, let us worship and bow down. That means to come in. Come in from wherever you are. Come into the temple. Come in and worship him. So the question we begin with here is this. How are we to worship? And we're going to look at each of the, the beginnings of the cycles here. We, we first of all worship when we come rejoicing. Notice verse 1, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of your salvation. Some of you are really good at that, by the way. Let us come into, the, into his presence with thanksgiving, and let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. So we're talking here about songs. And to sing a song means you have to open your mouth. Literally, the... The expression, make a joyful noise, is make joyful shouts to the Lord. Now, you've got to think of, of an era when there wasn't amplification. When people gathered, they might, in our context, think and sound a little Pentecostal, right? But he is worthy. He's glorious. He's majestic. It's a shout. Thanksgiving, these are songs of, of gratitude. Choirs that are lifting up their voices, adoring God for his kindness. And then praise, giving God the glory he is due for who he is. So what we see by these expressions is that these are verbal forms of crying out, shouting, and singing praise to the Lord. They are celebrations offered to God with joy. They are corporate in nature where each person is a participant. And so they are encouragements for us to use our mouths, our voices, to sing praises of thanksgiving and joy for who God is and what he has done. Now, friends, I am so thankful to be a part of a singing church. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever been in a context where you're kind of in a church and the loudest thing is the band on the stage. The band should not be louder than the voices of the congregation. And that's more of a philosophical thing because it's the voices of the people that God hears. He's not listening to the instruments. He's listening to the voices that are declaring praise. And the instruments are tools that are used to enhance the church to lift those praises and songs of thanksgiving. Oh, we need musicians, don't get me wrong. But those musicians are there to aid us in our corporate worship. And so friends, a healthy church is a singing church, a church that delights to express its thankfulness and joy through its songs 
of praise. That's a healthy church. A church that seeks to encourage all who are in attendance by singing passionately in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, as Paul says in Ephesians. They're doing that to declare, not just to God, but to those around them, the wonders and the glories of God, that He is worthy to be worshipped. That's a healthy church, friends. John Wesley gives some helpful counsel on how to sing. And like I said, you guys sing, but I think his counsel is worth listening to. It's just really brief here. He says, first of all, sing all. In other words, he means turn up so that you can sing with the congregation. How often do you get to sing with this many voices? And I was just standing here singing with you guys, and I was just in awe of the wonder of the voices that I was hearing. Secondly, sing lustily. In other words, he means with vigor, not just mouthing the words, you know. Amazing grace, how sweet. No, you're singing like you mean it. Sing modestly. In other words, don't try to out-sing the congregation. You haven't come to church so that you can be heard. You've come to church to join with the voices and singing their praises to the Lord. He says, sing in time, which is helpful. Because sometimes we don't. You know, how many times we jump ahead of the band, right? You ever know that, right? I do that all the time. I'm like, Get, jumping into the chorus. And they're like, yeah, not yet. Peter's up there saying, Pastor Rod, you're just making it hard for me right now. Sing spiritually, he says. In other words, focus strictly on the sense of the words you're singing and don't let the music become the end in itself. The reason we sing is to declare words of praise and worship through song to our great God and Savior. So we come, we're called to come to worship in such a way that we are rejoicing. Secondly, we come with reverence. This is in verse 6. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. And again, in our kind of more Baptist, you know, Bible church kind of context, we're not used to people bowing down, kneeling before the Lord. That's like a little over the top, isn't it? And yet it's biblical. But more than the posture of our worship is the heart orientation in that worship. A heart that is humble before the Lord. What right do we have to come into the presence of the Lord and bow down? The right given to us by Jesus Christ. What right do we have to kneel before the Lord? Who are we to even think about entering into his presence? We're nothing. Except the objects of God's affection who showered us with his grace and allows us to come boldly to the throne of grace. See, he is a holy God and we are not. He is an omniscient God and we are exposed in his sight. And he is an all-powerful God. And we cannot stand in his presence alone. It is only because of Christ that we can come in, bow down, and kneel. Friends, our rejoicing should never overshadow our reverence for Him. Let me say that again. Our rejoicing, our celebration, all right, our singing should never overshadow our reverence for Him. And our reverence should never hinder our rightful rejoicing. Both are absolutely necessary. 
Both are absolutely important ingredients of our worship. The two are not at odds with each other, but essential components of worship that complement the other. Have you ever found yourself singing along with God's church in corporate worship and you, you, you're singing a line and you're reading a line as you're singing and you are overcome by the truth of what you're singing and you cannot finish the stanza. You try. But your face is contorted, your heart is, is overwhelmed, and you want to get words out, but you're full of emotion because of what you're singing. You're choked up because something in you has been awakened by God's kindness and grace. Friends, we rejoice for what God, by his grace, has done for us. Yet, when we are ushered into his presence, we are in awe of who he truly is. Christians are not diminished now because we have come to know Christ as our Savior and our friend. He is still holy. And we are privileged to even approach him in our worship. So we approach with rejoicing, we approach with reverence, and these are two sides of the coin that go hand in hand in our worship of him. So we worship him with a, a reverential rejoicing. We, celeb we celebrate knowing that we are unworthy. We sing knowing that he is our ultimate audience. That is how the psalmist instructs us to worship. Now we want to consider why we are to worship from these few verses. Dick Lucas rightly says, in these seven verses, we are given more clearly, more concisely, and more completely what God has done for his people. This psalm gives a succinct look at our God who he is and what he has done. First of all, I want you to notice in verse 1, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. God is our Savior. And because he's our Savior, we sing. And Israel would see God as their Savior, as their Deliverer. That he was worthy then of, of their worship. He delivered them from the bondage in Egypt. He delivered them from the waters of the Red Sea. He provided manna and water in the desert. He delivered their, enemy, the, their enemies in the land of Canaan. He delivered them from the oppression of nations by the hand of deliverers, the book of um, Judges. He delivered them from exile in Babylon back to the promised land. Israel serves a God who has repeatedly demonstrated himself to be their secure rock who was able to deliver them. He saved them and he will continue to do so. And friends, that truth is ours as well. It is only through Christ that salvation can take place. It is only through Christ's death on the cross that deliverance can come. And we worship him because of his love for us, in that he came to this earth, revealed himself through his, his words, went to a cross, died a sinless death, was raised on the third day, and ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. He is our Savior who has given us new life in Christ. That's why we worship. That's why we rejoice. That's why we stand in awe and reverence of who he is. Not only do we see God as our Savior, we see that God is our sovereign Lord. Notice verse 3, for the Lord is what? A great God. And a great King above all gods. Hear this, please. Hear this. Hear this. There is no God of Islam. There is no God of the Mormon religion. There are no other 
gods that are real gods. They're figments of man's imagination. They're the descendants of Satan's attempt to deceive and to destroy mankind. There is only one true God. And He is sovereign. He is a great King above all gods. Interesting combination there, right? He is that sovereign ruler above every gods. And to make sure we understand it, notice what it says. In His hands are the depths of the earth and the heights of the mountains also. You understand what He's he's saying here? How low you can go, how high you can go. The sea is His, for He made it, and His hands formed the dry land. All of it is His. He created it all. And mankind somewhere in some place creates a God of their own making and says, ooh, here's a great God. And all sorts of people follow this false religion. And it's daunting and it's huge and it's got money and it's got people. And There's only one God. There's only one sovereign Lord. And He is the God of the Old Testament and His Son is Jesus Christ. Friends, we need to remind ourselves of that because it is daunting to live in this world at times, isn't it? These are also locations where the ancients believed that the gods came from or spirits inhabited. And the sovereign God here is saying, this is my territory. But not only is God our Savior and God, our Sovereign Lord, He is also God, our Shepherd. Isn't that wonderful? Yes, God saves us. Yes, God rules supreme over all His creation, but He is also our Shepherd. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord. What? Our Maker. Not only did God make us, but He shepherds us. Not only does He draw us to Himself and breathe new life into us, but He shepherds us through this life and ultimately into heaven. And He cares about us. Notice what it says. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. As a shepherd, He tends the flock. He cares for the flock. He feeds the flock. He wants the flock to, to, to be nourished, to be fruitful. He's not a shepherd that's going around slapping the sheep. He wants the sheep to be healthy. So He creates us. He cares for us. He guides us. Friends, these are the reasons for our celebration. God is our Savior. We praise you. We rejoice. But we are in awe that you would come to this earth and die on the cross for us. God is our sovereign Lord. There is none like him. And we praise him because of his majesty. And he's our shepherd. Friends, don't we sing songs that are full of this stuff? Absolutely. We praise Him with rejoicing. We praise Him with reverence because He is our great God. So in verses 1-7, through the psalmist gives us a call to worship, but what follows is quite shocking. It is a cause for warning. What we read here may at first glance seem like it doesn't belong. I mean, weren't we going along nicely, kind of hearing the the marks or the ingredients of, of, of what worship should look like? And then all of a sudden, after this rejoicing and reverencing the Lord, Sovereign Savior, and Shepherd, we have this shock to the system How is it that the the rays of of beautiful sunshine that are found in 1 through 7a are now replaced by the thunder and lightning of a dreadful storm? It doesn't seem to fit. But let us remind ourselves of what the rest of the psalm says. We're given a warning followed by an illustration from Israel's wilderness journey. It says, Today, if you hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts. 
as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen all my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have, been, they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Friends, I don't want to be the object of those words. And so what we have here, first of all, is a warning. A warning that that says this. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Do not be hard-hearted when God speaks. And after that warning, we have an illustration And this is the illustration of Israel who did harden their hearts and God was not pleased. This is a people who had seen God's powerful handiwork many times. They'd seen God's power and authority displayed in all the plagues. They remember the bloody Nile, the frogs and the gnats and the flies and the death of the livestock and the boils and the hail and the locusts and the darkness and finally the death of the firstborn son, yet through it all, God protected his people. And then on the night of the 10th plague, as the people celebrated the Passover meal, it's the next day that the Egyptians got up and they drove them out, giving them spoils for the journey. Get out, get out, get out. The Exodus isn't so much, if you remember, about Israel leaving Egypt. It's about the Israel or the Egyptians kicking Israel out. <laughs> I mean, that's how bad it was. Then as they stood at the brink of the Red Sea, facing certain death from the coming Egyptian army, that Pharaoh was like, what in the world did we do? All of our resources are gone. So they come, and yet God parts the waters, and God's people walk through, and behind them comes the Egyptian army, and they they followed the Israelites, and they died in those waters. These people had seen all of this. They'd taken it all in. They'd seen the mighty hand of God. And then God provided food and water as they wandered through the wilderness. But although God delivered them and provided for them at Meribah, which means quarreling, also at Massa, which means testing, the people rose up against Moses and demanded that he give them water. And the word quarreling there isn't so much like, hey, look, Moses, we're really thirsty. Can you give us some water? It's like, no, Moses, you have to give us water and we're going to riot if you don't. Which I don't know how that would have done anything for them, but... This is what happens. This is the generation that's being talked about here. They put God to the test. They questioned God for his goodness and his provision. And then we hear the thunder of this dreadful storm, don't we? Verse 10, for 40 years I loathed that generation. The word loathe can be translated, I was disgusted with. It's like me and Menudo. I loathe Menudo. I walk into a house in New Year's and I smell Menudo and I'm just like, I would rather have Taco Bell than Menudo. It just turns my stomach for some reason. Well, maybe it turns my stomach because I'm thinking about eating stomach, right? It's for another note. You learn some things about me. God is disgusted with his people, rightfully so. He loathed them. There are people who have gone astray in their heart, who have not known my ways, he says. That's the the thunder, but the thunder is followed by the lightning. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Done. Your rebellion 
and your stiff-neckedness, if that is such a word, has consequences. And you will not enter into my rest, being the promised land. Friends, the warning is that if we harden our hearts when God speaks, that's the warning. We run the risk of being the recipients of God's loathing, disgust, and we fail to enter into rest. Again, friends, I don't want to be the recipient of that message. So we move from a warning to an illustration, but now to an application. Here is the warning for us. We can come to the place of worship and sing and shout praises and offer choirs of thanksgiving. We can bow and we can kneel before the Lord. But if we don't listen to his word, if we don't obey his voice, there is no worship going on. Do you understand now what the writer of the psalm is looking to emphasize? He is not focusing really on the rejoicing and the reverence. You can go to all sorts of psalms to get that. He is setting up his readers for what he begins at the latter part of verse 7 today. If you hear his voice, do not Harden your hearts. When the church in our contemporary world says, we want more music, give us music, give us 40 minutes of it. And by the way, pastor, you have 15, 20 minutes to come up and say something at the end. We have lost our way. It's not because the music is bad. It's because we don't value the word of God. So you can go to many other places and, and find these instructions in worship, but when we come to, to chapter or to verse seven and, and, and the, the latter part of it, God here, or the writer, is looking to drop a bomb on us and to awaken our soul to see what is most important. By no means do I want to diminish the role of music and singing in the church. It's critical, it's throughout Scripture but not to the neglect of or to the eclipsing of the proclamation of the Word of God. And not only that, the willingness to receive the Word of God and be obedient to it. He's looking here to slap you silly out of your religious ritualism and to pay attention to His Word. I mean, Jesus quoted Isaiah and he said, this people honors me with their lips, but the heart is far from me. Friends, what good is it for you to sing praises to God if you won't listen to his voice? What benefit is it for you to bow before the Lord or to kneel in his presence if you are going to offend him by refusing to obey his word? Yeah, God, I'm going to come and I'm going to sing and I'm going to declare who you are and rejoice, all that kind of stuff. But when it comes for the time for the word of God to be unfolded before you, you're like, nope, I don't think so. I'll cut that little bit out. This is the reason why the Book of Common Prayer required the reading of Psalm 95 at every service, every morning and every evening before any of the scriptures were read, not because of rejoicing or reverence, but because of this little statement. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And now we're going to read his word. <laughs> so you'll be reading the Old Testament, and that's God's word. You'll be reading the New Testament, and that's God's word. You'll be reading some of the Psalms, and that's all God's word. God is saying, don't come to me with songs and ceremony if your heart is hardened to my word. 
And friends, do you know what happened to the Book of Common Prayer? Oh, it still has each service beginning with Psalm 95. But now only verses 1 through 7. Apparently, when the Book of Common Prayer came to the United States in 1789, a decision was made by some churchmen that verses 7b through 11 should be left out. And when asked why over a period of time, the response is given. Here's one answer. We realize that these verses present a problem for many people. You don't say. Another scholar, a few years later, he at least spoke honestly, and he says, these words are offensive to modern sensibilities. Yet these last verses of Psalm 95 do present a problem for many people, don't they? But that is their burden. They tell us that backsliding happens, that sin is deadly, that praising God is not enough. Now, friends, the irony is that a group of churchmen responded to God with hard hearts by choosing to remove the very verses that confront their hard-heartedness to the voice of God. But I wonder, what portions of God's word did you cut out in our cut-and-paste or cut-and-throw-away society? With all the stuff that's happening in the world, ideologies that are kicking in, ways in which Christianity doesn't seem to, to follow the ideologies of the world, there's a temptation to say, yeah, I know Paul said that somewhere there, but, but you know, cut out, cut out, cut out, cut out. This is God speaking, friends. And he wants to be heard. But when he speaks... And your voice, your heart is hardened to that. You are in rebellion against him. And no amount of singing or bowing down is going to change that. Friends, where does this leave us this morning? This is a warning to us about contemporary worship. And by contemporary, I don't mean to, to backfill that with, you know, modern, today kind of worship. I'm just saying, this is worship throughout the ages. Why? Because notice what the psalm says. He says, today, if you hear his voice. Well, when is today? Today is not tomorrow. Today is not yesterday. Today is the very day when God speaks and you are there. So it might happen tomorrow, but when tomorrow comes, it will be today. Am I confusing you? Just throw in daylight savings time and you're totally a mess, right? Because friends, the warning is for every generation. First of all, it's a warning to the wilderness generation. And the wilderness generation heard God's voice on a particular day and on many days that were called today. And they chose to harden their heart. And they suffered the consequences of their actions, loathed by God and failing to enter into rest. Then there is the, the psalmist generation, and likely David is the one who wrote the psalm, Hebrews 4, I think it's verse 7, talks about David saying these things. But he's writing to his generation to warn them about his today using the example of the, what, wilderness generation so that his generation would heed the example of the wilderness generation and not fail to listen and to obey God's word. And this is not just for the wilderness generation and the psalmist generation. This is all for, also for the first century generation. Friends, this is the generation of the apostles who wrote in their epistles about God's past dealings with Israel. They basically were mining the Old Testament 
and showing us in their epistles what God was saying about Christ and the church in the Old Testament, about how we are to interact with him. Turn, if you would please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Here's the Apostle Paul. We're not going to read this whole section, but I'll make you note verses 1 through 12. We're not going to read it all, but what we are told by the Apostle Paul is that what happened in the wilderness generation is to be a warning for us, an example for us to instruct us. Verse 11 and 12. Now these things happened to them. He was just giving the storyline up to this point. He says these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. This is a first century generation on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. The person who is putting on a show by their songs and their gestures of humility, but is unwilling to listen to the voice of God is like a man trying to stand up in a canoe. That's not in the text, but that's the point. If you think you stand... Take heed lest you fall. Have you ever tried to stand up in the canoe? Not for very long. You either sat down quickly or you got wet. You think you're standing while you're praising God but rebelling against his word? Mm -mm. You're going to come down with a hard crash. Why? Because that is not worship. That is an insult to God. He loathes it. But I'm singing. You are. But your heart is hard. And that's the point. Now these things took place as examples for us. If you think you can stand while rejecting God's word, look out. Because the fall is coming. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. We're going to meander through these two chapters. Did you know that there are two chapters that are basically unpacking these last few verses in Psalm 95. So listen to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 3, and um, just kind of jump in there with me. The writer of Hebrews is making an argument that says the sign of being a true house of God is that you will continue in the house of God. So it says in verse 6, but Christ is faithful over God's house. That's the arena that he's been given his responsibility as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our blessing or our boasting in our hope. And then in Hebrews 3, 7, the writer begins to quote Psalm 95. But notice, notice that he is not quoting the first half, is he? He understands that the emphasis in the psalm isn't verses 1 through 7a. The emphasis in the psalm is the punchline and the driving home of 7b through the end of that psalm. But notice how it begins. Here's how it says. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. Now friends, there's something really important for us to be reminded of here. Likely it is David who wrote this psalm. But anyone who wrote God's word, although they may be using their own personality, their own gifts, was being borne along by the Spirit of God. So there's a human author, but there's a divine author that's working through the human author to accomplish what he's saying. And that's what the, the writer of Hebrews is saying to us. This is the Holy Spirit that's speaking. So you can't say, well, I don't have to listen to David. I don't have to listen to Paul. I don't have to listen to Peter. I just want to listen to Jesus. The problem is that Jesus believed that what Peter and Paul and others were saying were the very words of God. So you've got a problem there. You have the might say, anyone here have a red-letter Bible? I'm not going to shame you. I have that. Um but don't think that the red letters are any more inspired than all the black letters. That's just letting you know the words of Jesus. But there has been movements, not too far recent history, that have said, well, we focus on the red letters. But then you're focusing on something that God never said you should focus on and be exclusive with. It is all God's word. It's all breathed out by him. 
Now, can't say these are just man's word. We can take it or leave it. We can ignore it and cut out if we don't like them. They are the very words of God. Now, friends, isn't that how the Apostle Paul speaks to the Thessalonian church? Just turn left a little bit in your Bibles if you have them. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. I love this section, and it's a reminder for me of my role as pastor, but the power that comes through it. 1 Thessalonians 2, 13. Paul is writing to this, this Thessalonian church that are an example of what a church should be in many ways. And he says, and we, this is verse 13 of chapter 2, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Now, friends, I know I'm preaching today. I know other people have been preaching throughout the summer that are other men that are part of our church, some are elders, some are not. And although I'm standing up here and I'm seeking to proclaim the very word of God as his mouthpiece, I don't want you to listen to me. What I want you to listen to and the person I want you to hear is God speaking through his word. I'm just the person that's showing you what's there, trying to explain it to you, trying to illustrate it, trying to apply it. So when you come to church, you can say, I have heard the voice of the Lord. Ignore the other stuff. What you need to do is then do what the Bereans did in the book of Acts. They listened to what was said, and they went back and they studied God's word to find out whether what was being said is actually true or not. And I delight when you guys do that. Let's continue in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Through 19, what is the reason for the hard-heartedness? Verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called, what? Today. See, this is all from Psalm 95. That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? Friends, this is a description of believers. Quite, no, I, I said that wrong. Is this a description of believers who sinned or failed God? And the answer is no. Why do we know that? Because you and I sin and fail God all the time. Is this a description of believers who are greatly tested or who have questions about why God permits pain and suffering and struggle? The answer is no, because we all go through times like, like that. What is being described here is not believers who have failed or sinned or worried or doubted, but pure and unadulterated unbelief. See, Jude 5 clears it up for us. If you want to turn there, it's a little bit to the right in your Bibles. Jude 5. This is what Jude says. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, right? Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who, what? Did not believe. He didn't destroy all of them. He destroyed those who did not believe. See, Dick Lucas says it well. No believer, however frail, tried, weary, perplexed, will ever be lost. No believer will ever be lost. No unbeliever, no matter their upbringing, their theological credentials, their church authority, will ever be saved. You remain an unbeliever, you won't be saved. And all the descriptions that are given to us in the latter half of Psalm 95 and here in Hebrews 3 are terms of unbelief, rebellion, quarreling, hard hearts, putting God to the test. That means questioning, making questions like, God, you must do this, and why haven't you done that, right? Disobedience, ignorance of God's ways. These are not the marks of a faltering Christian, but of the hard-hearted unbeliever. 
These are the marks of 40 years of stubbornness and grumbling and rebellion. This is what disgusts God. It is unbelief among those who call themselves Christians. So just as belief comes by listening and softening your heart, so unbelief comes by refusing to hear and hardening your heart. And that's why we turn now to Hebrews chapter 4 as we continue this argument that he's making. He says, therefore, while the promise of entering rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So you hear the language that's happening here? For we who have believed enter rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of a seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in his this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day. I know there's a lot going on there, but just think of it this way. Wilderness wandering. This was the rebellion. This was there today. David is warning and saying, hey, guess what? Don't follow them. These people who rebelled were not able to enter into rest, meaning they were not able to enter into the promised land. David is now speaking. Guess what? He was born in the promised land. He's living in the promised land. And yet he still hasn't received rest. Because there is a Another rest. See, the first century generation is also able to enter into rest because it is the Sabbath rest, not marked by a piece of land, but marked by a person, and that is Jesus. Pick it up now, verse 9. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. You see what he's pleading here? Don't follow the example of the wilderness generation. So how can God break through our sinful, rebellious, and hardened hearts? Have you ever wondered why verse 12 is here? For the Word of God is living and active, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of what? Of the hearts. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give account. What's the answer then to my hard heart? Allow the word of God to break its way in. As I listen to God's word, he exposes my heart. As God exposes my heart, I begin to see who I am and who he is. And the shock of it is, is that the sword pierces us, it wounds us, it reveals the sin that is there. But hear this, verse 14 now. (laughs) Since then we have a great high priest. The question is, what are we supposed to do with all these wounds, all these things that the Word of God reveals? Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. Weakness, not hard-heartedness here. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence 
draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of trouble. You see what he's arguing for. Hard-heartedness is overcome by the word of God being unleashed in our hearts. So this is the warning for every generation, the wilderness generation, the psalmist generation, the first generation, and the fourth thing is the current generation. The psalm is addressing not only those generations, but every time the the voice of God is heard in a generation that is called to listen to and obey God's word, it is called to do that with tender and teachable hearts. Every time the word of God is spoken, is revealed, Our hearts should be tender to receive it, to obey it. Friends, this this message is still true. What is the true heart of contemporary worship? Three things. A joyful heart that rejoices in the works of God. A humble heart that is reverent in the presence of God. But the most important part is this. An obedient heart that is receptive to the Word of God. You take away that third component, you have empty worship. It is that third component that drives the joyful heart, the humble heart, because we understand who God is, we understand who we are. And so I want to leave you just with three brief concluding thoughts. Number one, heed the warning. What is the orientation of your heart today? Today, if you hear his voice. Harden or soft? Heed the warning. Humble yourself before his word. Allow it to have its full way with you. Secondly, help the brethren. Hebrews 3.13 is a wonderful text. Exhort one another, when? Every day. As long as it's called today. That none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We need each other. (laughs) Talked about church membership. We need each other to encourage one another not to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so learn to lovingly come alongside a brother and sister in Christ and live life with them so that when you see the hardness of their heart creeping up or you see the deceitfulness of sin creeping in, you can speak a word of encouragement to direct them in the, in the right way and to allow the Word of God to have its way in their heart. And finally, hope in Christ. See, he's arguing for this in the book of Hebrews so that God's people would ultimately find their rest not in a land And hear this, not even in heaven, but in Christ. And so we who are God's children, we who know Christ as our Savior, we already have this rest. You know, sometimes we get so busy and burdened, we say, I need a a vacation. I need to go and I need to go rest on vacation. And when you get back from that vacation, what do you say? I need a vacation from my vacation. Friends, there is no need for rest from the rest that we find in Christ. We don't need a vacation from our rest. It is only in Christ that full and complete and holistic rest is received. I want to challenge you, friends. Fight against unbelief. It's a battle. Embrace Christ. Listen to His Word. And then when you come together with the body of Christ, we together sing and we show our reverence 
and we glorify him by having hearts that are soft and tender for whatever he wants us to hear. And we do that for his glory and for our good. Lord, help us today. This is a hard psalm because you want to slap us silly with this truth, Lord. You want us to see the importance that the hardness of our heart or the softness of our heart is critical. That when you speak, we not only listen, but we obey. And Lord, when we do that, you don't loathe us. You love us. You nurture us. You care for us. And when we receive your word as your children, Lord, we we have the promise of rest. And even though it's difficult at times and we may falter in our faith, we may be overcome with our sin. Lord, our anchor is our hope that we have in you. So Lord, even today, uh, there may be all sorts of people gathered here who just need to be reminded to listen. To be obedient, to trust you, so they can bring glory to you. Lord, you're a good God, and we trust you. Have your way with us. Accomplish your will, Lord, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen.